Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Oh, that uh, end of the year fatigue is real. It is real, real, real. (laughs) I feel like I've been hit by a truck. Me too. Yeah. As we we look at each other smiling with our eyes (laughs) half-masked. Well, I'm going to try to pep up. Well, it's actually an incredibly depressing case. So I'm going to pep up just to be brought down. Oh, (laughs) okay. What what are you doing today? So today I'm covering the tragic death of Katie Autry. Have you heard of this? No. Cool. (laughs) You're about to hear all about it. I got most of my information from a docu-series called Southern Gothic. On May 4th, 2003, at around 4 a.m., Captain Bob Sanborn received a call at Bowling Green Fire Department. It was a Sunday morning, and there was a fire in one of the dorms on the Western Kentucky campus. At first, when the students heard the alarm sounding, they figured it was just a prank, and they were reluctantly getting out of their beds. Most of them had been partying. They're freshmen in college. You know, it's 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Andrew Howard, a student at WKU, was deep asleep when the alarm went off, and he was so annoyed by the possibility that this was just some sort of fire drill. And I remember my first week of college, my dorm did a fire drill, like, consistently. And there was, like, one, like, the very first week, and I, like, went outside in my glasses with my earplugs, and I think I was wearing a onesie. And I still feel, like, the burning shame when I think back on that, when it's, like, because it was a co-ed dorm, and you're just standing out there, and I forgot to take my earplugs out, and I'm just, like... (laughs) I want to be home. I miss Sonoma. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Everyone headed down the back of the stairwell and then filed outside like they had been taught to do so. The RA then had to make their rounds going from room to room to make sure that everyone had waken up and gotten their butts outside. The RA was doing just that when she noticed that room 214 was locked. No one was answering the door when she called out and knocked. That's when she realized that the smoke was coming from underneath that doorway. Oh, wow. What a weird. It was just like starting to, it was just seeping out. Oh, oh, okay. The campus police arrived on the scene and they were able to unlock the door to room 214. The smoke was incredibly thick and the police weren't equipped to handle it, so they had to go outside and sit and wait until the fire department arrived. One of the WKU officers met the fire department outside and informed the firefighters that the fire had already been put out. A few guys from the fire department entered the room and noticed that everything was pitch black. They eyed their room to get an idea of what had happened, and as they're leaving, something catches their eye. It looked as if it was just a bunch of clothes piled up on the bed, but then they saw the pile move. 
It looked as if it was a chest rising and falling as they were struggling to take a breath. Oh, my God. The young woman's face was covered and wrapped with a nylon stocking. Captain. Captain. (laughs) Captain Bob. (laughs) God. It's going to be a long one. Is he French? Captain Bob. Bob. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. This is so serious. Captain Bob Sanborn said it was like when bank robbers pull a stocking over their face so that they can see but won't be recognizable. They removed the stocking slowly from her face, and from what they could see, she had been terribly beaten. Her face was completely battered, and she had small puncture wounds all over her neck. And the wounds were small and round, so they assumed it had been with a pencil or a pen. Oh, It appeared that she had also been strangled. The students watched as the firefighters carried 18-year-old Katie Autry out of the building. One of the firefighters looked at the crowd of students and said, if you're a praying person, then right now is the time to pray. Katie Autry was born in Rosine, Kentucky on June 10th, 1984, making her a Gemini. Rosine is as tiny as it gets. As of 2020, it had a population of only 110 people. Oh, it's like smaller than my graduating class of like a Catholic school, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Katie had one sister named Lisa and the two girls were inseparable with her cousin Barbie. They dreamed of opening a salon one day. One would do makeup, one would do hair, one would do nails. Katie was put into foster care around middle school when her mom got really sick. Luckily her, and they didn't say what had happened, but luckily her foster parents were great people and they were very supportive of Katie and Lisa maintaining a relationship with their biological family. Katie was sunshine in human form. Her energy, her spirit was so contagious. It was impossible to be in a bad mood around her. Her cousin Johnny said it almost seemed like she never had a bad day. She was a cheerleader all through high school, which seems like a very fitting sport for someone like Katie. She had applied to a bunch of colleges, but committed to WKU, a college that was only an hour away from her hometown. She was incredibly family oriented. So choosing a campus that was so close meant that she'd have her own autonomy, but would still get to see her family as much as she wanted. Katie met a fellow student named Howard the very first week of school. They were in the same dorm and became quick friends. He described her as shy and quiet until you really got to know her. Then she was lively and talkative and always wanted to be around you. Katie became really close friends with a girl named Danica and ended up moving into her dorm with her. They were inseparable and were never seen without each other. Her freshman year was going really well and she was building her own little community at WKU. A week before summer break began, she was carried by firefighters out of her dorm room, room 214. Katie was being loaded into an ambulance when they heard her say, take me home. Even though she was covered in horrific third and fourth degree burns, she was still alive. She was rushed to Bowling Green Medical Center. Meanwhile, police treated her dorm room as a crime scene. It was evident that someone had tried to kill Katie. Officers saw that someone had tied a wet rag over the sprinkler head to prevent it from putting out the fire, but enough water was able to escape and the fire was put out. Arson investigators took a look around the room to figure out where the fire originated. It appeared that the fire was started on Katie's bed. Her mattress was burned all the way through and a crumpled up blanket was completely torched. They were able to determine that the fire originated on Katie herself while she was lying on the bed. Oh. Danica's side of the room did not catch fire. Arson investigators knew it would be difficult to collect evidence because not only had her room caught fire, water had drenched everything as well. 
They did locate a can of hairspray that they believed could have been used to accelerate the fire, so it was bagged as evidence. It appeared that Katie had been raped, beaten, and stabbed, and then set on fire so that any evidence would be destroyed. So where was her best friend and roommate when all of this occurred? They were never seen without each other, so it was very suspicious that she was not there. Okay. Meanwhile, Katie's family had been alerted of the accident, and they headed straight to Bowling Green Medical Center. When the family arrived, the nurses immediately guided them into the quiet room. The doctor walked inside and informed them of what had happened to Katie and that she was going to need to be airlifted to Nashville. He also made it clear that she would probably not survive the trip to Nashville due to the severity of her injuries. Oh my God. She was taken to Vanderbilt burn unit and put into a medically induced coma. After two days, the medical staff wanted to reduce the sedation and her mom, sister, and cousin were in the room with her. When she was regaining consciousness, she started moving her head and swinging her arms and hands around like she was trying to fight to defend herself. And it was unclear if she was reacting this way because of the severe pain and not understanding what was happening to her or if she was still or if she was still like mentally in the dorm room trying to fight and defend herself. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. And unfortunately, the family will never know. The first piece of the puzzle was to figure out exactly what Katie did the night of her attack where she was, who she was with, and what she was doing. Like most dorm buildings, you had to have a student ID to get inside, or you had to have an ID to show to a guard to be able to access the elevators or stairs up to the rooms. In this particular dorm building, you had to show your student ID card to the attendant at the front desk, and then you were allowed to go up. At 1 or 1.30 a.m. on May 4th, Katie was seen by the female attendant entering the building by herself. Katie smiled and waved at the girl at the desk. She was wearing blue jeans and a burgundy jacket. Katie walked straight up to her room. Katie's roommate, Danica, was nowhere to be found. Detectives started asking the students um, that were gathered outside if they knew where she was. One girl said that Danica was staying at a friend's house that night. The girl called Danica and informed the detective that she was headed over right away. When Danica went into the police station, she was in tears. She told detectives that she and Katie had been at a frat party the night before, specifically a Pi Kappa Alpha, also known as Pike Party. It was Kentucky Derby weekend, which is a massive deal in the South, especially Kentucky. There were a lot of parties that weekend and everyone was drinking. Katie's boyfriend, Maurice, was at the party with the girls. He played football for WKU. He had quite the reputation with the ladies. Katie was in love with Maurice. She was very loyal to him and that was not reciprocated. Oh. It turned out that he was actually seeing a, like quite a few women behind Katie's back. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Katie and Maurice got into a fight at the party that night and she was asked to leave by one of the guys there. Like, and obviously it's like this docu-series is doing like a reenactment, so we don't really know, but it was, he was talking to another girl. She comes up and kind of like interrupts and he seems annoyed that she interrupted the conversation with this other girl named Ashley. Oh, <laughs> oops. oops. <laughs> and uh, it's his girlfriend and he's like pissed that she like cock blocked him basically. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so then she starts yelling, they start fighting, and then a guy comes up to her and he's like, you have to get out. And then Maurice mm -hmm. doesn't even stand up for his girlfriend. Well, no, because she's cock-blocking. Yeah, if she leaves, then girls can come <laughs> at <afraid>. him. <laughs> Seriously. There were frat pledges that were in charge of being the designated drivers that night. And according to Danica, she took the driver aside and asked him to get her home safely. She mentioned that his name was Ryan. According to Danica, Katie got home at 2.30 a.m., 
She knew this because she had called her to make sure that she had gotten there safely. Katie had told Danica that she was lying in bed and that she felt sick, most likely due to drinking and the fight that she had just had with her boyfriend. Suddenly, Danica heard someone walk into Katie's room in the background. Katie then said, I'm scared. There's this guy in our room. I don't know who he is. I'm scared. Danica told Katie to hand him the phone so that she could talk to him. She asked him who he was, and he told her that he was the guy that drove her home from the party. He said, don't worry, I'll take good care of her. And Danica said that she actually heard at one point another voice in the background, a male voice, before the, before they hung up the call. Oh, so there were two men. There's two men. At first she was just talking to one and then she heard one in the background. And I'm not trying to judge because she is young, she's 18, but Danica didn't do anything about this. She didn't go to the dorm to check on Katie or notify anyone that there were strange men in her room. In her drunk friend's in room. Her drunk friend, and, and her friend saying, I'm scared. Yeah. She just hangs up and goes about her night. Yeah. Which I'm, I said, I'm trying not to judge, but I judged. Yeah. Because <laughs> even at 18, I would have done something. Yeah. Just call the cops. Literally do anything. Yeah. Call one of the guys that you're friends with in the dorm. Yeah. Literally anything. Now investigators are potentially looking for two males that might have done this to Katie instead of just one. Detectives brought in Katie's boyfriend, Maurice, for questioning. Maurice was visibly upset and he told them that Katie had asked him to go home with her and he had said no. He actually went home with another girl that night. Maurice gave the detectives her name and number and his alibi checked out. Next step was locating and interviewing the driver that night, a young man named Ryan. When authorities showed up at the frat house, Ryan wasn't there. They asked a couple of the frat guys if they had seen anything strange that night. And a couple of them noted that there was a man sitting inside Ryan's truck the entire time the party was going on. So when Katie got in, Ryan wasn't the only man in there. Ryan told the authorities that he simply dropped her off at her dorm building and then drove away. He said he didn't follow her inside and he definitely didn't talk to Danica on the phone that night. He was questioned about the mysterious man that had been in his truck, and he told authorities that he was just a guy from his hometown named Stephen Souls. According to Ryan, Stephen got too drunk at the party and he needed to lay down. So he spent most of his time at the party in the back seat, just trying to sleep it off. Stephen was not a student at WKU. He was just there for the Kentucky Derby parties. During the drive to Katie's dorm, Stephen got sick. Katie teased him about it, and when she got out of the truck, she said, see you later, sick boy. Hope you get to feeling better soon. And according to Katie's family, that was very much something that she would say. Ryan then told the authorities that they were driving away from the dorm building when Stephen suddenly asks to get out. Ryan didn't question why, so he let him out of the truck, and he went home to play video games with his roommate, and his alibi checks out. Okay. So this guy, Ryan, is for sure not Ryan involved. is definitely not involved. But Steven's getting out of the truck. Yeah. So the detectives were very curious about who the Steven guy was and why he wanted to get out of the truck that night. They looked him up and saw that he had been arrested before, but for nothing big or violent. He was 20 years old and originally from Scottsville, Kentucky. They looked everywhere for Steven, but it was like he completely disappeared. On May 7th, Katie's cousin Barbie called up Katie's mom. She wanted to see how she was doing and how she was progressing. Katie's mom said that the swelling was actually subsiding, so she was starting to look like herself again. She was very hopeful that Katie was going to be okay. She said, I think I think she's gonna make it. The relief didn't last long because by the time Barbie had gotten to the hospital to visit her, Katie's swelling had returned. The doctors told her family that they didn't think Katie would pull through. Barbie said, I just remember praying for God to save her because I didn't wanna live in a world where Katie wasn't here. 
That night, a candlelit vigil. Is it vigil? Vigil. Okay, that was vigil. And I was like, that's kind of like a really aggressive word. <laughs> What'd you thought it Vigil. <laughs> What'd you thought? <laughs> what you thought it was on a, a vigil. A we vigil. can't speak. You yeah, thought it was I'm vigil? So, I, yeah, I just don't know anymore. It's like vigil, vigil. It's like, it's vigil though, huh? It's vigil. All right, gosh. Fatigue is not, not good to my intelligence. <laughs> that night, a candlelit vigil was held on campus for Katie. Over a hundred people showed up and said prayers for her. Meanwhile, Katie's family sang my girl to her as she passed away at the hospital. Mm. Like the, the idea of that is so heartbreaking. Yeah. An autopsy confirmed that she died as a result of her burn injuries. Detective Pickett knew he had to take a different approach to this case so that he could get justice for Katie and her family. Southern hospitality is a real thing in Kentucky, so he drove over straight to the family home of Stephen Souls and he talked to his family. He told Stephen's brother that he's not a hard guy to get along with and it would be in Stephen's best interest to talk to him immediately. It was important for Detective Pickett to build a rapport with the brother and he told him that he wasn't going to up and arrest him when he saw him, he just wanted to talk. As Detective Pickett was leaving, his brother said, if I find him, I'll have him call you. That evening, Stephen was at the police station. He came in voluntarily and he agreed to an interview. He said that he did have sex with Katie Autry that night, but he insisted that he didn't hurt her. He confirmed what Ryan said about the party and being drunk in the truck. He said that Katie did get out of the truck and walk to her dorm, but he also said that he wanted to get out of the car to make sure she made it up to her dorm room okay. <sighs> yes, come on. Katie didn't see that he had gotten out of the truck and followed her. So when she opened the door, he snuck in right behind her. That really sounds like, like someone trying to make sure you get there safely. Yeah. Steven said that he went up to her room and talked to Katie's friend on the phone around 2.30 a.m. For hours, Steven sat in that room being questioned with his head in his hands, gently rocking back and forth while repeating, I didn't hurt that girl. He came clean about following her into her dorm room, having sex with her and talking to Danique on the phone, but he insisted that he didn't hurt her. I feel like the more you insist that you didn't hurt the girl who died violently, you probably had something. You probably to do with did kind of hurt her yeah. a little. I did have sex with her. I did talk to her friend when she said that she was scared, but I didn't hurt her. Mm -hmm. She wanted me there. I snuck in behind her. <laughs> However, he admitted to knowing who did. According to Stephen. He was hanging out with Katie when his friend, Lucas Goodrum, called to ask where he was. Stephen and Lucas had known each other for a while. They had gone to high school together back in Scottsville. Lucas was 21, so he was a few years older than Stephen. Stephen was 18 at the time. Stephen said that the next thing he knew, Lucas is at the door of her dorm room. Oh, he just <laughs> happened to know exactly where That's her dorm room was? I was like, my, I literally wrote down, my brain is spinning. <laughs> because it's like, you know where she lives. You know what room she's in. You know what building she's in. Mm -hmm. It You got in you to the building. You got into the building. You need an ID. Mm -hmm. Come on. And it's like, also, why are you acting like you weren't expecting him yeah. when you gave him all of the specifics? Right. Also, where was he if he got there so quick? Yeah. That's bizarre to me. Yeah. He said that Lucas walked in and can tell that he and Katie had had sex. And according to Steven, he wanted to get some too, but she wasn't down with it. Oh, I know. I'm not even going to acknowledge I know. this. I know. Lucas instantly gets violent. He pushed Katie onto the bed. He sexually assaulted her and proceeded to beat her. 
while Stephen stood there doing nothing. He said that he was scared that Lucas would do something to him if he were to interfere. Like, God forbid he protect this young girl because he doesn't want to get hurt. Yeah. Stephen said that Lucas started spraying her with hairspray, and that's when Stephen left. He insisted that Lucas set her on fire after he had already left the building. This explained the two voices that Danica heard on the phone. Investigators seem to buy Stephen's story, and after taking a DNA sample, they release him. They have to gather more evidence before they can actually place him under arrest. Meanwhile, the students on campus are frightened. A fellow student had been sexually assaulted and burned alive in her own dorm room, and the females on campus feared that they were going to be next. Some WKU students recalled that all the girls would travel in groups and the males would escort them to their cars and dorms. Arrests hadn't been made and no one felt safe. Understandably. Understandably. I'd be horrified. I would probably leave school. Well, it's also like you've done, I think that's why like home attacks are like the scariest because you are, you're home safe. You're, you're at the place where you text your family to let you know I've made it. Yeah. So nothing bad can happen to you or should be able to happen to you now that you are in your safe place. Yep. She was in bed by herself and was burned alive. Just a nightmare. The Bowling Green Police Department got in contact with the Scottsville Police Department to see if they knew anything about Lucas Goodrum. They were fully aware of who Lucas was because they had had quite a few run-ins with him throughout the years. And crazy enough, Scottsville PD had gotten a domestic violence report on Lucas just hours before Katie Autry had been attacked. Oh, wow. Just on a rampage. Apparently that night, Lucas and his teenage girlfriend, he's 21. Oh, so. So we just, yeah, you know the type. Lucas and his teenage girlfriend had gotten into a fight and at one point he slapped her. She stated that he hit her twice in the face with a cell phone. That escalated into Lucas punching her and holding her down in her car so that she couldn't get away from him. The teenage girl called the police, who informed her that since she's a minor, she would need a signature from her parents to issue an arrest warrant. What? I didn't know that was a thing at all. I was like, is that a Kentucky thing? I don't understand. Uh, it, like, hi, I'm a, I'm a minor. A man just beat me. Can you arrest him? No, you have to get your parents' consent. To get the guy who did the crime? Who just beat you. Like, what? I don't think that that is, a, I do not think that that's correct. That has to be either a local thing or something lost in communication. That's so strange. Because also, if you, let's say someone broke into your home and attacked you, you're 14, 15, you call the police. Oh, I wonder, you know what I'm I wonder if what it is, is like she as a minor needed her parents' involvement in order to press charges, maybe? They said that just to um, issue an arrest warrant. Wow. That's Isn't that bizarre? So weird. So no warrant was issued. She didn't want to go through and tell her parents, most likely, Ugh. because it's her boyfriend. Yeah. And they're probably not happy that she's they're dating a 21-year-old. They're probably going to make her break up with him. I know. God forbid. Six days after Katie Autry's body was found, police were able to locate Lucas Goodrum. When he was brought in, he thought he was there because of the attack against the teenage girl the same night. Like, no, another woman. <laughs> Wrong woman, Lucas. During questioning, he admitted to running into Katie at the frat party that night. He insisted that Katie flirtatiously rubbed his stomach with her hand as she walked by. Most like, She most likely was just like in a tight space and then like bumped him. Sure. But that's the only interaction that he had had with her. He didn't go to her dorm room and he definitely didn't murder her. Lucas insisted that the police had the wrong guy. And when detectives told him what Stephen had said, he called him a liar. Said, he's always been a liar. 
says the guy who just beat his child girlfriend, girlfriend and then didn't know why he was there. He's like, oh, I thought it was because I beat the other chick, yeah. not this chick. They got absolutely nothing out of him during that interview. But based off of Stephen's testimony, Lucas was arrested for murder, rape, assault, and arson. Good. DNA and fingerprints were taken and sent to the lab so that specialists could compare Lucas's fingerprints to those found on the scene. It took three months for the Kentucky State Police Crime Lab to provide the results. DNA taken from the crime scene matched the samples of only one person. And that man was Stephen Souls. Oh, the first one? The who, first guy, the one that said that I didn't, I hadn't done nothing and I left before everything went down. Whoa. There was absolutely no DNA or physical evidence that could place Lucas Goodrum at the scene of the crime. Stephen Souls was arrested and taken into custody. He took a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, and the agreement was that he would plead guilty and testify against Lucas. This guy, Lucas, denied ever going to her yeah. thing. Did he said he or or the Stephen said the thing about the stomach? Uh, Lucas said that Lucas he was at the party, the-, the Pike party. Okay. And the only time he's ever seen this Katie girl just is he's moment. at this party and she rubbed his stomach and that's it. Like she, he knew of her, but he never went to her dorm room, never touched her. Okay. And then, but Stephen was like, no, you showed up at her door. Did all and, that stuff. And also Danica heard two male voices yeah, on the phone. Right. It's, and you can't, how do you explain Lucas that? Lucas is a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's definitely a piece of shit no matter what. We hate him. <laughs> we hate him. Lucas Goodrum's murder trial began in March of 2005. This was almost two years after Katie had been murdered. When Stephen was on the stand, he said that he had been in her dorm room when Lucas showed up. He said that Lucas knocked on the door and then walked right in. Stephen stated that Lucas told Katie, you're going to give me some of that whether you want to or not. Then Katie proceeded to slap him. Lucas grabbed her face with his hand and shoved her into the wall. Stephen recalled that Katie was going in and out of consciousness during the attack before Lucas stabs Katie multiple times in the neck. With what? It doesn't specify what, but the when they did the autopsy, they did think it was either a pencil or a pen based okay. off of the size and how yeah. far it had gone in. Steven stood there in horror and tried to leave. Lucas told him that if he didn't shut up, he'd murder him and his family. And this is when Steven's story changed significantly. When he first talked to the police, he said that he got scared and left the dorm room. Now he's saying that Lucas forced him to do all of the things that he had just done to Katie to cover it up. He said that he did in fact rape her, but only because Lucas made him do it. And this is the most ridiculous accusation because samples taken from the crime scene clearly show that one man had assaulted her. If Lucas had assaulted her prior, his DNA would have been there. And I hate to be like graphic, but the sperm of one man doesn't cancel out the sperm of another. Sure. They would both be there. But you could also argue, thinking about it later, if he was to rape her and the semen wouldn't be inside of her okay. and it was located maybe on the outside of her body or she was burned or yeah it's like there's there are yeah. ways of getting rid of it but it's yeah. like the way he was trying to say is like so that i would cover up his and it's yeah. like that's not, that's not how even how it works. works although there's so many people who don't understand how anything works. anything works <laughs> so i could see how someone might believe that oh that's for sure yeah. for sure i'm just guess i'm saying this to our listeners yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. that they don't think that that's the way it works <laughs> yeah. steven then made a shocking statement He said he didn't leave the dorm room after that. He said he took the hairspray himself and the lighter and continued to spray Katie until she was burnt to the bone. 
Oh my God. But once again, only because Lucas told him to. And he is saying this all during, on the stand? On, on stand, yeah. In his trial? On, during his trial. Oh my gosh. I bet his attorney was like, bro. Yeah. I know. The majority of the hairspray was directed towards her genitals so that semen would be destroyed. Now it was Lucas Goodrum's time to take the stand. He stated that he was at his parents' house at the time of the fire. And according to Lucas's father and stepmother, he was home in Scottsville by the time the fire alarms were going off. And it's like, that. of course your parents are going to say you were there. Yeah, I was going to say that's like... That's the worst alibi. That's like saying yeah. like your it's abused... like your spouse. Your, your, like, your abused spouse yeah. testifying and saying that, you know, her husband was there all night when they weren't. Yeah. There was no proof that he was home, just his father's word. And why did he go to his parents' house after partying all night when he didn't even live with them? Oh, he didn't? He doesn't live with them. He has roommates. He lives in a different place. Oh my God. <laughs> and Luke, literally, Lucas's roommates admitted that he was exhibiting some very bizarre behavior in the days following the murder. They recalled that he slept in the closet instead of his own room. Oh, okay. So he's, yeah. he's going through like a mental break. And not only that, he cannot stop talking about that he wants to leave everything behind, even his car, and just run away to Florida. Florida. Of all, I, know, I know, I know. <laughs> of all places. He's 21. So. And I believe that these are the actions and words of a very guilty man. Sure. You just start sleeping in the closet like all of a sudden after you've used your bed like a big boy all these years. I don't even understand that part. I think it's, I, he feels unsafe, yet he's the monster. Huh. I can see doing that after an attack, but I think maybe after experiencing something traumatizing, even if he did it. Okay. Yeah. It's like you're in, the, I don't know. I, I'm not in that brain, so. Yeah. After two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Lucas Goodrum innocent of the murder of Katie Autry. There was no physical evidence placing him at the scene, and he was able to walk free. He was living in Texas for a while, but his current whereabouts are still unknown. What? Stephen Souls was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving his sentence at the Luther Luckett Correctional Complex in LaGrange. A man named Richard Mueller claimed that he and Lucas Goodrum were in jail at the same time when he was in for a misdemeanor assault charge. He said that they were in the Warren County Regional Jail Medical Cell. They were both recovering from injuries that they had sustained while there. When Lucas opened up to Richard about what had happened. Oh, I love these. I know, I do he told Rich, he told Richard that he was one of the men who had sexually assaulted and beaten Katie Autry. He said a black man had been there with him. Richard didn't understand why Lucas was telling him this and even said, this is none of my business. I don't want to hear it. Oh, wait, this is Lucas. This is Lucas. This isn't. Yeah, so this is the guy. To... That, this is the guy that got off. So he he was in jail for something else. Oh, sometime in the future. Sometime. Though the, yeah. Sometime after the attack. Oh, I misunderstood. And, and he said that he had and it was like a very short stint. Yeah. But he said that he had he had been one of the people to beat and rape her and that he had done this with a, a black guy. And, and Stephen Black. Stephen is black. Stephen Souls is. Oh, OK. Richard said that six other people had been in the medical cell with him at the time. So they all heard this. Wow. And moments after stating what he had just said to just Richard, um, he turns around to everybody else and he was like, I didn't actually, I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with it. So he admitted fault and then looks to everybody else and said, I didn't do it. Most likely because he doesn't want to get beaten up by everybody. 
But it was too late because the other inmates um, had heard that Lucas said Katie was worthless and no one would care about her death because she was poor. Wow. Records show that Lucas Goodrum was in fact in the medical cell from December 30th to January 1st. And Richard Mueller had been in the medical cell from December 28th to January 5th. So there was in fact overlap proving that they were in the cell at the same time. And there's unfortunately no way of knowing if any of this is true but Richard Mueller still stands behind what he told detectives during the voluntary interview. Like he went and volunteered all of this information. Apart from this guy, Richard, did any of the other occupants of the No one place? came forward. Oh, okay. According to the day cup. Oh You're doing fine. I wish you had heard what I, I was trying to say WKU and I said day kaboo. <laughs> <laughs> like I couldn't have been more wrong. Say it like that again. Day kaboo. <laughs> According to the WKU Herald, Autry's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the university in September of 2003, alleging that WKU didn't provide proper security that could have saved Autry's life. In 2007, the Kentucky Supreme Court ruled that WKU is protected under sovereign immunity, according to a memo sent by former president Gary Ranzel in April of 2007. So didn't work. The lawsuit didn't go through. Wow. The director of housing and dining at WKU made sure to make safety improvements, such as electronic door locks in all of the residence halls. So that was good. Something came of it. And admittedly, I fell into the Reddit black hole and a good portion of the comments are about the blatant racism during the trial and sentencing. Apparently, Lucas Goodrum is the stepson of Cal Turner, the man who founded Dollar General. So not only is he a white man, but he has the Dollar General fortune and he had the money to pay for better legal representation. And he's a white man in a southern state. Sure. The talk around campus at the time was that Lucas actually was the main aggressor, but the lack of evidence due to reckless behavior by campus police and an alibi that was confirmed by his own parents made it so that everything was pinned on Stephen Souls, an African-American man who had to use a public defender. He didn't have the money for yeah. you know solid representation. Yeah. And unfortunately, we will never know if Lucas had any involvement or if Stephen was simply lying to cover up the crimes that he had committed. Even though one individual was sentenced to life in prison, I can't help but think that another individual got away with a horrific murder. Katie and her family deserve justice, and I do not believe justice was served. And that is the story of Katie Autry. That was great. I think it was half served. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Half the equation. Well, Katie's family's, you know, obviously was devastated that he, that Lucas got off. Yeah. I think everyone knew he had been there. It was yeah. like ridiculous for Steven to place a random human from high school at the location. Yeah. And it's too bad that just because of, you know, security back then, mm-hmm. if there had been cameras or any sort of detection, like electronically speaking, yeah. to see if another person had entered. So what year was that again? 2003 was when gosh you would think that there would have been more you at least cameras it's kind of crazy that there wasn't how many years is that almost 19 years ago but 2003 i mean security cameras are are a thing of course thing it's not like this is the 80s and that's what they the family was arguing with their lawsuit is if you had done literally anything she would still be alive it's just it's obvious i think it was obvious that lucas was there um even because she heard the two voices. Danica heard it in the background. So distinct two voices. And Katie had said, I don't know who they are. I'm scared. Yeah. That's so devastating. It's so sad. In your own home. Yeah. 
And then her boyfriend, her, I, I can't even imagine his guilt too, because oh, she's asking him to go home with her and he says no. And I then know. he goes and sleeps with another girl. I can't imagine. That's oh my God. terrible. That's kind of as bad as it gets guilt wise. Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> even, being involved. even if he wasn't, regardless of him sleeping with anybody else, just knowing that you have the ability to go home with your girlfriend to make sure she gets home safe, be with her, all of that stuff, and you and chose you not to, and then something horrific happens as a result. It I wouldn't have happened if she- Had if anyone he, there. Yeah. And then think about the guy that went up to her and was like, you're ruining the vibes of the party. Oh, you God. need to get out. I know. Yeah. And then Danica, it's like she had so, this Katie girl had so many people that just didn't, that were in her life, that didn't do anything yeah. to have her back and protect her. Yeah. If I was her family, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, if you're young and dumb and drunk and you think you're invincible, which is usually what young people think, mm -hmm. it's just so easy to write off certain things. Like I, in my mind, it's, but especially now, with age, mm -hmm. I can't fathom a drunk friend of mine leaving without me. No. I can't fathom even even when I was younger, I wouldn't go drinking unless there was a sober person in the group. And that's that, that like sober chaperone, person was in charge. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And there but there's just some people who don't think like that. And it's such an unfortunate lesson to learn in this manner because you can't just go back. But it's I mean, your drunk friends should never be alone. You should never send off one of your, you know, drunk girlfriends with any guy. You're technically I mean, not safe being sober and alone. So yeah. being drunk and impaired is not gonna do it. Yeah. And on top of that, like if you if your friend calls you and says, Hey, there's strange men in my room, yeah. Do something about it. Yeah. Don't just go about what you were doing yeah. <laughs> prior to that call yeah. drunk with somebody at their house. This reminds me a lot of this Kristen Smart story. Mm -hmm. In that scenario too, it's like they thought they were getting her home safely. She was with a group and then she went off with one guy and something horrific happened. But you just have to look out you, for your girlfriends. You just have to. I, just, I, I can't imagine not doing that. I've looked out for girls I've seen outside of bars that I don't, oh I'm God. not even connected to. And I'm like, I remember making sure that they got into to a cab safely or I made sure that they found their friends. It's like, I, I can't imagine seeing someone incapacitated, especially if I know them and not do anything. Mm -hmm. it, it's just, I have been at bars sober. So I've been able to then see what's actually going on dynamic wise. Yeah. The amount of times that I've ended up spending my evening with a girl that can barely stand yeah. because I can see that a guy is circling her or that she's just not watching her drink. Yeah. You gotta look out for your sisters. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> So anyways, that's the depressing story. It's all done. <laughs> well, you now told we, we'll go to nap. <laughs> you told to go to nap. Go to nap. I'm so tired, actually. <laughs> December's hard when I you're know. an adult. <laughs> I have a job. <laughs> I hate it. Well, you did very good. That was a really interesting story. And I hadn't heard that before. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Surprise. Very cool. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> well, I love you. I love you, too. I'll see you next year. Oh, whoa. Yeah, we can We can say that. We can say that we for can real. Say that. Like, we can say that. We said it next week. We said it last week. But we're saying it again. And this you're week. maximizing. It. I know. I like it. You're the guy in the memes. I'm one of those people. The people are like, don't be that guy. Yeah. Ashley, be that guy. I'd be that guy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> bye. See you next year. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. 
This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.